Welcome to Gagliardi's Got Real Estate podcast, hosted by myself, Gerald Sabri, and Rocky Gagliardi. We look forward to bringing you something fresh, something new the Golden Valley hasn't seen before, more informative information. We've got special guests, hot topics. Make sure you follow on your preferred podcast platform, GSRE Socials. We hope you enjoy this episode. G'day folks, it's uh, Rocky here from Gagliardi Scott Real Estate. Good to see you again and tuning in. Today we're very lucky to have two very special guests joining us in Andrew Galbraith and Jane Law. Um, and we're going to talk about commercial law in general and just basic subjects that we run into every day. So I'm guessing you'll be interested to hear what's uh, going to transpire in the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes. So hand it over to Jane. Can you just uh, give us Ladies a bit of a brief first. description? Ladies first, that's right. Thank you, Rocky. I'm Jane Law. I'm a director of Cameron's Lawyers yep. and I work predominantly in the areas of property law and commercial law. Mm-hmm. How long have you been in the industry, Jane? Uh, I've been in the industry around 20-ish years. Yeah. I've been in it at 26 and I've always worked for you both the whole time. So, Andrew? <laughs> and my name's Andrew Galbraith. I'm a director of Dawson Ferry Reardon, and prior to that, uh, Reardon and Partners and Reardon Legal. I hate to say, but I've been practising the law here in Shepparton for over 30 years, yeah. principally in the commercial and business law area. So I'm a Law Institute accredited specialist in commercial law, and I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed my professional life here in Shepparton. See. Lucky for me, I've introduced you and obviously we'll get around to other law firms. Obviously we do a lot of transactions in commercial real estate with our office and obviously run into you both a lot and obviously and you're both at the other end of each other's transactions in particular locally. There's a lot of subjects that uh, a lot of people bring up and they ask us as agents and, and one, one common one is obviously GST and you know, how it relates to leasing or sales and obviously when there's a, obviously a GST attached to an industrial property or commercial property. So run us through you know, basically what, you know, how, what attracts a GST, what's the mechanisms for that like you know what, what actually what do you look for when you look for GST and and so forth Jane if you want to. So um, the first question in relation to GST is whether or not the vendor is registered yeah. so if the vendor is not registered for GST or required to be registered for GST then there's simply no GST no, in relation to that transaction. We liaise with our clients accountants all the time in relation to GST related matters and to inquire about whether or not the vendor is registered. Once we get past that first hurdle, if the vendor is registered for GST, we then need to consider which method of GST or exemption might be yep. applied. Yep. So when, when, an, when a buyer rings us up about the GST, and we, we normally should have a section 32, and we brought this up in the last podcast, as we believe it should be made law, section 32 should be produced before you put a property in the market. Which uh, is the position in New South Wales. Yeah, and it should be here too, and I think that should be, I've been saying that for years, but but that's probably one of the first things that I should look at as an agent, but you know, when a, when a buyer rings me, I don't know sometimes, because section 32 is not ready or a lease is not ready, so I'm... I'm Generally assuming, and the most common person is that the GST attracts all commercial and industrial stuff, and even residential properties that are on an industrial activity zone. Explain, Andrew, when you're exempt from GST, I suppose, not just when you're not registered, but say the, say the vendor or landlord is registered, and I'll go to sell the property. What do you look for for an exemption of the GST? GST? What would a buyer need to... All right, well, going on Jane's point, let's yeah. assume for a moment that the transaction is going to pass the four tests, which mm. is, is the vendor registered or required to be registered. There has to be a supply of something, mm -hmm. and in this case it's property. Mm -hmm. The transaction occurs within Australia, and it's, and it's supplied in the course of an enterprise that yeah. the, that the uh, supplier of the property is making. So assume that all those four tests are met. 
question is then, or prima facie, it's going to be a taxable supply. And uh, what that will mean is that the vendor of the property will have to account for one eleventh of his price as GST and send it to the tax office. What the vendor sometimes or often does, of course, is he likes to say that my price will be plus GST. Correct, yeah. So that contractually, the purchaser is contractually obliged to pay the vendor the GST in addition to the price, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's where we talk about 10%. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a property that's priced at 100,000, plus GST means that the purchaser will pay 110,000. So in the commercial sphere, the major one would be whether or not the vendor can supply the property as a going concern. Now, uh, what does that mean? That means that there's an enterprise effectively conducted on the property or the property is part of that enterprise and the vendor is providing to the purchaser everything needed to enable the purchaser to run that same enterprise. Yep. Okay. So the most common one there is leasing. So where you sell a property which has either an existing lease, let's say it's just an existing Mm -hmm. lease in place to make it simple. If the vendor can convey to the purchaser the lease that's already on the property and the purchaser takes up that lease, one can argue that it's a going concern and what then must happen under the requirements for the exemption are that both the vendor and the purchaser have to agree that it's the supply by the vendor of a going concern to the purchaser and that the purchaser will be registered or if not is registered already for GST. And nine times out of ten, like, we'd go for that process, but it's mainly the lawyers that get together and sort of decide that obviously for the clients because obviously you talk to each other's accountants and so forth. So it's pretty... Not always straightforward, but pretty straightforward. And a lot of times I get asked the question, because they're trying to avoid the GST, and obviously a lot of that got, has got to do with cash flow. Mm. And, you know, and we're talking lot, lots of money. Like, you know, for example, we do sell commercial property, but a lot of the properties now are in the millions. Mm. You know, even in a million dollars, it's $100,000 that a buyer's got to come up with. Mm. And obviously if it's got an ongoing concern, as you explained, Andrew, that, you know, they, they don't have to spend that money. But if they did have to spend that money... Mm. That's another $100,000 they've got to come up with and there's obviously ways you try to avoid it. But on top of that, am I right in saying that the extra $100,000, that attracts the stamp duty? It's not only paying stamp duty on the million, but you're paying on, on the ten hundred thousand. Is that right, Jane? Yeah, that's yeah. correct, Rocky. Yeah. So when we're discussing whether or not the purchaser is paying full GST versus whether or not a going concern applies, in the event full GST is payable by a purchaser because yeah. there's no exemption available... The purchaser pays the GST to the vendor at settlement. The vendor returns the GST to the ATO. And then the purchaser, after settlement, receives a tax invoice and is able to claim that bit back. So it's a timing issue and a cash flow issue in relation to the payment of the GST amount. However, stamp duty, as you correctly said, is payable on the GST inclusive property value. Mm. So um, if you've got a a property of $100,000 plus GST, you are paying stamp duty on $110,000, which when you get to the the value of the properties that are selling at the moment, it can be a very significant... And they don't get that back or they do? No, they don't. Not the stamp duty. And and a lot of... of, It's amazing how many people don't know that. Yeah. They don't realise that you actually got to pay stamp duty on, which is where early days the argument was a double dipping. Yeah, and that, that is still an argument. So that's another reason why it can be beneficial for the parties if there is a lease in place that suits 
the going concern provisions yeah. because then at settlement GST simply isn't applicable. So the purchaser doesn't have to come up with an amount for GST. And in addition, there is no stamp duty calculated on that GST inclusive figure. And look, we could talk about GST all day. (laughs) Really, there's that many connotations. So, you know, I encourage the listeners out there if they have any questions to give you both a call at your offices if they want to go a bit further. Doing a lot of commercial sale transactions and leasing and so forth. One of my biggest bugbears is landlords preparing their own leases. <laughs> okay. So, and, and, and a lot of reasons. My bugbear is because, I, in my opinion, I think they're doing themselves a disservice. Why they think they're trying to save themselves a dollar, I think it sometimes potentially costs them. But what's the benefit from a landlord doing, as advice from doing his own lease compared to engaging a lawyer? Look, I see a lease as one of the most dynamic documents mm. um, as an agreement between two parties. I mean, yes. uh, a sale and purchase transaction, you know, it starts and it ends. Yeah. It's relatively quick. And by and large, there won't be anything that comes back after it. If you're a landlord, you've got to maintain an ongoing relationship with your tenant. So you need to have it clear what rules are there under which your property will be possessed by the tenant. And so you need to be someone who has a document that's drawn to suit you as best it can be. Mm. So... I agree that, obviously I'm agreeing, but yeah. I agree that of all of all the documents, a lease is the most dynamic document. It's one that continues on and often for a considerable period of time because, as you know, most lease terms, whether they be three years, five years, often in the commercial sphere, have a number of options which mm-hmm. entitles the tenant to renew the lease with options. And so you could be a 20-year relationship that yeah. you have. Not only that, although you might have a good relationship with that tenant, that tenant may transfer the lease to someone else that you don't even know. That's a good point, yeah. So, again, it goes back to uh, having your document right to see that your relationship doesn't require, you know, relying upon some friendship or otherwise with the tenant. Because really, at the end of the day, if something arises, everyone is going to reach for that document. Yeah, and oh, it, it's no skin off my nose, but I don't do any extra. But I know the headaches that potentially comes of it. And it annoys me when I see an agent prepare a lease document. And it's some, I've seen it, and we manage a property, we've transferred, and the trouble that it causes later, potentially, and, and ambiguous is obviously allowed. And obviously, but once you sign a document, it's a legal document regardless. Mm. So the landlord, in my opinion, save themselves some dollars at the start, but it could cost them a lot. Am I right there, Jane? Like a lot later in particular? Or? Yeah, definitely, Rocky. It's really risky. Mm. The The risk is that, um, following on from what Andrew said, the, the lease could go for a potentially really long period. So mm. it's not something that you can sign up and then consider it settled and mm. finalised. And the risk for the landlord is, you know, the old story, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So whilst they might think they are armed with all of the information and prepare a lease document mm. that suits their circumstances, as soon as someone's circumstances change, the document, mm. the lease is the document that you refer back to. It's a legal binding document. Legally They're binding They're locked document. in as much as what the tenant is. Yeah. Absolutely. And that you, the landlord might not realise that they failed to provide something mm-hmm. that they were required to provide or they may not have put in something like a rent review mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's really dangerous and it's very difficult when the client finally does come to you asking for help, it's very difficult to get them out of it, yes. out of it at that point. And it costs them... A lot more money. Much more. Dearly. And, yeah. you know, as a sale, selling commercial property, 
and now is more relevant than ever with the inflation that we're at and, and the increase in the CPI. And obviously, the, as the economy changes and we all structure our leases at the time comparing to the economy, and obviously you cap sometimes your CPIs. Landlords would love, always want trying to get your three percent. Now they're trying to say no caps, and tenants are saying cap it at. Mm. You know, so it's before it was happy to have it because it was always around two percent. As an agent, that's important to the value of that. So my my take on it is to get the lease right first. We're offside properties and some big ones. I think Jane, we might have been involved with one a couple of years ago when the landlord did his own, and it really cost him a bit of money at the end because it, he had to go running around last minute. But all in all, it's inflation or the CPI mechanisms actually increases the value of the property if you mm. can apply it right. So if that rent gets up and they renew again and you're at the market review, which tends to happen, the value of you, you actually risk losing, you know, 10% value of your equity when you go to yeah. sell it later or more, you know, depending if you haven't done it right. So it's very important. It's the importance of disclosure statements, Jane. Um, so when a premises is used for retail purposes, the Retail Leases Act applies. The Retail Leases Act requires the landlord to comply with a whole stack of requirements that lawyers are generally familiar with, but often the landlords are not. So one of those requirements is that the landlord has to provide the tenant with a disclosure statement, which relates to the costs associated with the premises prior to the commencement of a lease. In fact, prior to the provision of a lease. Mm. There are a a number of other things that Mm. that Act provides. And one of those things, for example, is that you're not allowed to have a rental ratchet clause. So a lot of landlords like to hedge their bets in relation to Mm. rental increases, like you said before. So you'll hear a landlord would say, I'd like to say 3% or CPI, whichever is the higher. When the Retail Leases Act applies, that's simply invalid. Yeah. So neither of those rent review provisions apply. Although you still see it today. Yeah. You still see it today. Really, yeah. So, so it's important, isn't it? Like it's, that's why it's, I mean, you're just talking about that, how important it is for a landlord to actually engage a lawyer. Yeah. Because there's so many other things behind the scenes that, that you need to advise them on before they commit to a a lease, you know. Yeah. What you, you might, sorry, Joe, yeah, what you, you might it. say there is, I mean, some landlords might be happy with, you know, an either or situation, yeah. but what you then got to explain to your client is what the what the consequences are mm. if one doesn't like that position, and that yes. can happen. Yeah. And yeah, the act is significantly alters what would otherwise be an agreed relationship between the parties. Yeah. Yep. I mean, my when I first started practice, landlords were charging land tax. Landlords were charging their legal costs, mm. and just about every lease had a rent ratchet clause in it. Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, there's been significant change in the the retail leasing area, mm-hmm. and the other thing too is that the Retail Leases Act has a very broad scope. The definition of retail premises is much wider than what people might think. Well, that was the next question I was going to ask. What is the difference of between a retail lease and a non-retail lease? You know, what is the difference to the layman out there that's looking at it? Well, you, or would Andrew, yeah. well, the premises has to be used predominantly for the retail sale or of goods or services. Yep. Now, that's been interpreted by the courts as if you make, for example, there was one case where I think there was a quarry mm. and people could go in and buy quarry material and, you know, get a a sales docket, an invoice, yeah. get pay that, pay for that and take the quarry material. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a retail premises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking at the character of the premises is not enough. Yeah. You've got to consider what's done at the premises. Right. Yeah. So it can have a very wide yeah. approach. So again, we go back to preparing, make sure you get advice. Mm. The disclosure statement, when do you have to produce a disclosure statement and you know, the term of the lease, how long, when, start, finish? 
Mm. again. <laughs> <laughs> so a disclosure statement now is meant to be provided to a tenant two weeks before the yeah, entry right. into a lease. Yeah, didn't know that. And, <laughs> you know, I've got to say... I didn't know that. It, ..it's often not complied with yeah, right. because yeah. usually the deal is struck before the instructions come to yes. us. But Plus a copy of the lease at the same at yeah. the, as well. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And that disclosure document, it's basically the numbers document that lets the tenant know what their rental and outgoings obligations are going to be in relation to the lease. Because, yeah. of course, we know that in addition to paying rental for a premises, it's very common that a landlord would ask the tenant to pay outgoings such as council rates or water yeah. rates or insurance figures or, or and all of the usage charges for mm. services connected to the premises. So the purpose of the disclosure statement is to give the tenant an outline of the range and the amount of all of those outgoings yep. for budgeting purposes. Yep. And then the lease document is the document that creates the legal relationship between the landlord and tenant. So that's the one that locks the parties in yep. for a particular term. So you'll often find, and I think you touched on this before, Rocky, a lease is usually for a period of a certain number of years, um, so say three years, and then it will often have a number of option terms. Mm. And this is another thing that I've come across with landlords having prepared their own lease. They don't understand the nature of an option term. So mm. I've had some landlords that have said they've granted a lease of three years with three option terms each of three years. And then at the end of the first three years, the tenant wishes to exercise the tenant's option, which is their right. Mm. But I've had landlords, landlords approach me before and say, oh, no, we don't want to. We would like to end it at that three years. And you just can't do it. If the tenant's not in default, um, then that option is there for the tenant. Yeah. So it's just little things like that. A landlord just may not know what the consequences are going forward at the time they're drawing up their own lease. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I get that a lot. Especially yeah. tenants too when they say, oh, well, they've come to end of their first term. Oh, what happens after that? Like, are they going to kick me out? Well, no, it's your actual, you know, your option, not the landlord's option, which is what landlords don't get. Mm. You're right. So with those leases, do Andrew, do you have to produce a disclosure statement? Say the current tenant's still in and he wants to exercise a renew. I suppose a couple of things is, by law, we have to give him some sort of notice that the lease is coming up and they have to answer. Is there a general rule for that? And do we have to provide a right with a disclosure statement at that time again or not? So if the lease includes an option, actually, if I can just go back yeah, one definitely. step, and one important other aspect of the Retail Leases Act is that by law, the tenant is entitled to a minimum five-year term. So if, you, if, a, if you've drafted your lease as a landlord and only given the tenant, say, a three-year term with no options and the tenant wants to stay, he'll be able to use the benefit of the Act to keep him there. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's just another yeah, yeah. example. Yeah, and just touching that for a sec while we're on that subject, mm. Andrew, is I forgot about that, is is what we have to do if it does if it is less than five years, what's what's the mechanisms for the landlord or the agent representing the landlord to put in place so they don't use the act to get So the landlord can make an application to the Small Business Commissioner yeah. and effectively what it means is that the Small Business Commissioner will get in touch with the tenant and explain the tenant's right to a minimum five-year term and yeah. find out whether or not the tenant is, is happy with a three-year term, example. Yeah. And if so, then the Small Business Commissioner can issue a certificate exempting yeah. that lease from the minimum five-year term. Yeah. 
So going back to the issue of disclosure statements and renewals, so landlords have an obligation under the Retail Leases Act to give tenants notice of the last date by which they can exercise their option. So most options, the mechanism for exercising an option is for the tenant to give notice to the landlord. And if that notice is the procedure for exercising with that notice is followed correctly, then the landlord by and large is obligated to renew the lease. Mm -hmm. And in fact, by law, the lease is effectively renewed. So the landlord must remind the tenant. Now, this is a notice that's given no earlier than six months and no later than three months before that date. Yep. Okay? So if a notice date is the 30th of June, well, the landlord has to have given that notice on or after the 1st of January and before the 31st of March. Yeah. Also, the landlord, there have been recent changes uh, that also involve what goes in the landlord's notice. I mean, putting, putting it in, in a very broad summary, he has to give an indication of what he wants the rent to be. Yeah. And there is an opportunity under the under the Act that even if the tenant does exercise the option, there is the opportunity of getting out of exercising that option as well. Let's assume the tenant does exercise the option to renew, then normally lawyers are instructed to draft a deed of renewal of lease, which can be a very simple document, maybe two or three pages if that. But also what goes with that is another disclosure statement, but it's one that's very simple in its information effectively saying what may have changed between when the lease first started and, and now, yeah. Yeah. to put it okay. in broad terms. Yeah. We don't have to do a myriad of disclosures of estimated outgoings, although under the Act, the landlord is required to provide annual estimates of outgoings. Mm, that's right. So, yeah, it, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a more simpler approach. Yeah, yeah. Mm. If I'm, I'm a tenant and I'm leasing the building and I've sold my business, they sign the lease. Explain that, how that happens, and obviously subleasing as well, Jane, like mm. with the tenant that's currently in that wants a sublease, or they've sold their business, they want to assign it to someone else. Mm. You know? I'll start with the transfer of business one. Yeah. So um, in the event a tenant sells their business, part of that is often transferring the right to use the premises to the purchaser as well. Yeah. So the the current tenant makes an application to the landlord for consent to the for the lease to be transferred to the proposed new tenant. Yeah. So the Act provides some requirements that need to be complied with for that and that involves references and some financial information about the proposed new tenant to satisfy the landlord and then a transfer of lease document and a transfer of lease disclosure statement that need to be signed by the landlord and the old tenant and the new tenant yeah. to affect that. And it's a condition of that that the landlord's legal costs are covered by the outgoing tenant yeah. in relation to those circumstances. In relation to a sublease, so a transfer of lease means the old tenant steps completely out and the new tenant takes over. A sublease is when the there's the landlord and a lease with a particular tenant mm -hmm. and then the tenant wants to lease all or part of the premises to a subtenant. Mm -hmm. So you'll often see that there might be an, a lease for an office or a shop and someone wants to rent a room from yeah. that particular tenant. Yeah. So it still requires the landlord's consent, but the different arrangement is that the the tenant, that middle person, is always responsible to the landlord for payment of rental and outgoings, even though there might be an agreement between the tenant 
and the subtenant mm -hmm. for them to make a contribution to the yeah. tenant for yeah. the room that they're leasing. And a tenant, and my right to say, landlord really can't reasonably reject a. Uh, subtenant, is that correct? They need to be reasonable in their considerations yeah. in relation to a transferee yeah. tenant or in relation to a subtenant. And those reasonableness requirements, so we all know what reasonable yeah. means. Um, well done. <laughs> <laughs> there's a scope of yeah, what is Yeah, it's a pretty big scope, I reckon, reasonable. That's but, yeah. right. So it's mainly the landlord is entitled to ask for information that gives the landlord comfort that the tenant is able to, the new tenant is able to come in and can afford to pay the rental and has some sort of security or asset behind them that they're in a good financial position yep. and also references in relation to that tenant personally or in relation to past business experience that they have got. Yep. So an example of what might be unreasonable is if there's a lease and there's a tenant coming in that's been bankrupt five times and mm. has got no experience in running a business of this particular nature, the landlord might say, Look, I'm not comfortable, I don't think you're going yeah. to make a real go of this and I don't think moving forward, you have the capacity potentially to continue paying the rental to me. Yeah. But it's a real argument. Yeah. Andrew, a lot of tenants don't understand what the obligations are if they decide to break a lease if they're two years in or five-year lease. What what are that tenant's obligations if they do Well, break? a lease is a contract yep. and it's a contract for a term. And if a tenant's business is not going well, obviously one of the things that can suffer is he doesn't pay the rent. Yeah. So if a landlord finds that he's not getting his rent paid on time, most leases will say that uh, you don't even need to give the tenant notice of any breach of the lease. But most landlords will ask a lawyer to send a notice yeah. to the tenant advising him that you've got until this date in which to catch up on your rent. Now, if the tenant continues to fail to meet his obligations, then the landlord might take steps to re-enter and terminate the lease. So I know you talk, you're talking about what can a tenant do to terminate his yeah, lease. Yeah. I'm talking, about, talking tenant, about what a landlord can do, can do to terminate yes. his lease. And um, there have been situations where uh, we have literally locked tenants out of their premises. They turn up at 8 o'clock in the morning, they can't yeah. get in. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. Yes. But often that's the quickest way of getting your rent paid. Yes. <laughs> a tenant does have a right to seek relief against his lease being forfeited. Mm -hmm. um, that's a statutory right under the Property Law Act, but invariably it will mean that he has to catch up on his rent. Yeah. So if he catches up on his rent and any other outgoings that he may have to pay, then normally he would be entitled to get yeah, back in. Persistent breaches of the lease, that, that may not be the case. A court may not be prepared to grant him relief. Yeah. Now, so we talk about a tower, can a tenant break a lease? Well. For start, we go back to the retail leases. Yeah, end. I suppose I'll probably clarify a little bit too. I, I probably didn't mean to say break. They've come to an agreement with the landlord. Sure. They want to get out. The surrender. The surrender. Sorry, yeah. that's probably that's a better right. word. Yeah. So more more the surrender because a lot of tenants don't understand what their obligations are. So what are the tenants' obligations? They surrender or want to surrender at least. Well, uh, it depends on what is agreed with the landlord. Yeah. So if of course. Uh, there a lot is of them a, don't want to be out of pocket, the landlord. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, to the landlord, this to, to him is a uh, defined rental return for mm. a period of time and suddenly it's being cut short. Yep. Well, the approach is being made to cut it, cut it short. Yep. So what does a landlord expect? Well, he would, he would want to try and 
I suppose, capitalise what those rentals are and try and negotiate something is near enough to getting mm. some monetary compensation for his agreement to terminate the lease. We've been talking about leases and, you know, obviously they relate to sales sometimes. I sell a lot of properties in, in Shepparton and obviously, you know, it's common. Commercial transactions are pretty relevant around here. In the Golden Valley, we have a lot of clients that I deal with, that you both deal with. What do you, a lot of them like to talk to their lawyer before they buy or commit to something or a lease or, or, or sale contract. What, what do you look for to give them advice on um, when they go to purchase or look at? So as far as a freehold goes, if I had a client that was looking to purchase a freehold property, I'd be looking at the proposed contract and or section 32 to see what was involved. Yeah. So the section 32 is going to provide us with a whole lot of information about the title and the zoning and council rates and or arrears and things like that. So the, the I guess the day-to-day -day things on a property. And then in addition, the Section 32 would provi provide a copy of the lease um, if there was a lease that yeah. was applicable to the property. So um, in those circumstances, you'd be advising your clients on the, the nature and effect of three documents, the, the contract, yep. which is the agreement between the vendor and the purchaser. The section 32, that's all of the disclosure information from the vendor that's mm -hmm. given to the purchaser. And then the implications of the lease. Because when you purchase a property that's subject to a continuing lease, the purchaser steps into the shoes of the landlord and becomes the landlord after settlement. Yeah. So I think we might have touched on this before. If you're acting for a purchaser who perch is purchasing a property and they expect to be able to move in straight after settlement and use it for themselves, mm. there's a lease in place. You need to notify the purchaser that that may well not be the case. And and it might be a very long time if there are a number of option terms it's amazing. on that lease. It's a, it's a lot, of, lot of conversations I have, it's amazing how many people think, oh, well, we'll buy it. I said, well, do you realise there's options? And they, and they don't understand. Like, yeah, okay, they might be out in two years, but they might renew their options like, the land, like we said to school. So they don't – it's very important. What I try to explain it is, listen, there's no guarantee you're going to be in there – uh, until the tenant decides to leave, you know. Well, the tenant this... actually has statutory protection. Yeah, mm. but that a lot of a lot of purchasers don't understand that. No. They don't yeah. get it. So. And I think that's the difference between residential tenancies and yes. retail leasing that or commercial leasing. I think a lot of people have more involvement in residential tenancies, which has the different notice yes. provisions. Mm. And then when they come to purchase a commercial property that's subject to a commercial lease, there are just assumptions that are made in relation to the ability to terminate, but it, it's just not available to them. Yeah. What do you advise a potential tenant about leases and, and what do you look for to advise them on? And then obviously their own background too, what they've got to do. Well, sure. First is, is the property itself they're leasing. Yep. So, you 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 know obviously there's no contract there's no actual prior disclosures that are mm. provided yep. to you, so uh, you need to do your due diligence on the building itself. Mm. The zoning too. So that would include does the use that you wish to make for that premises that something permitted in yep. that planning zone. Yeah. So for example, if you're buying something in an industrial zone, and you want to put up a couple of units, well you might struggle. Mm. Okay, so it is important that if you're going to take a lease, you do need to see that there'll be no issues for you conducting your use of those premises. 
The other things too, of course, relate to the structure of the building. I'd have it checked out by a proper registered builder. I'd also have a termite inspection done. Then you go to the question of title. So one would take a title search. We confirm we're dealing with the right person as the owner. We also, <laughs> obviously from the title search, one can glean that the owner either has a mortgage on the title or he doesn't. Yep. And if he does have a mortgage, we need to obtain the consent of the bank to the lease mm -hmm. because without the bank's consent, if yeah, the important. landlord goes broke and the bank takes possession, it can actually kick the tenant out. Mm. So that's another important point. Obviously also, you know, if you're planning to do renovations, certain fit-out, what other potential planning issues or heritage overlays mm. or uh, things of that nature. The other thing too is, particularly in the Shepparton area, is to do with parking. Mm -hmm. So you would need to know how many car parks come with that property. Mm -hmm and whether or not, depending on your business, whether more car parks are needed. And if there's no physical space for the car parks, you actually have to pay the council Very good point. for the mm -hmm. car parks. And a lot of tenants don't understand that. They don't understand the that. Yeah. Yeah. So look, there are, there are a few things. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's important yeah. because I come across them all the time, like uh, recently a childcare centre in an industrial zone, you know, and that sort of stuff, which, you know, that's important information, especially if they're going to commit to a lease and the amount of money. Just it, the amount of connotations, you know, a lot of people don't understand they can do a medical centre in a residential zone, provided they get permits, the right stuff. You know, that sort of stuff is important, especially if starting a business. We've touched a, a lot of subjects this morning. <laughs> you've both been very informative and detailed. And you've been in it for a long time. You've done a lot of transactions. Have you got any stories you can tell us that you think <laughs> it's weird or funny or or just you didn't expect to happen? It's sort of, you know, I know I've come across a few, but I'd like to hear your side or your any stories you might have, Jane. If you don't, that's fine. I do. I have a lot of stories. <laughs> Most of them relate to real estate agents oh, right God. <laughs> but um, my personal favorite is the time I was acting for a vendor in Melbourne that owned a large pub freehold mm -hmm. and also the, the pub business which included liquor licensing and employees and pokies it was worth millions yes. of dollars and back in the day you know how the agents used to assist with the preparation of contract notes yes um, so this Melbourne real estate agent I'm assisted. Glad you said Melbourne. It was it was <laughs> Melbourne. A Melbourne real estate agent assisted by preparing a contract note for the sale of the pub freehold yeah. that was in the millions of the dollars. Remember those contract dollars. notes? Yes. And then they included the six million dollar pub business as a chattel in the freehold oh, contract. Really? Okay. So oh wow. No GST considerations, uh, no no anything. It was just, you know, vendor, purchaser, price, chattels, includes the business. Fortunately, there was a really good lawyer on the other side that was acting for the purchaser and we were able to have a chuckle and properly mm. formulate all of the Fortunate documents. for the agent too, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> too right. You could have been in court. Yeah, yeah. It was just a very funny one. Hence why I love to I always say use lawyers. They get agents involved. They're not professionals in those and use a specialist. Andrew? <laughs> well, again, I have a bit of an agent story. But... Uh, <laughs> It's <laughs> to do with those bad old days where yes. uh, agents would see that an auction was going well by putting bids in that may not necessarily have been legitimate. Yes. And one particular auction of a property, we were pre-warned that this auction would not go anywhere, but there'll be people putting their hands up, putting bids up, and we're actually going to knock the property down for sale yeah. or as sold. 
And so I was at the auction and I had my instructions not to effectively sign anyone up, but it didn't quite turn out that way. <laughs> and someone came up from Melbourne and approached me about buying the property and I must admit I thought that he was one of the agent's dummy bidders yes, yeah. and we had this interesting conversation and in fact the chap was a lawyer yeah. and was uh, <laughs> which made it even more difficult until the agent put set me aside and said oh, actually we have actually sold the property yeah. so <laughs> now that will never happen these days no never he, that, he was never he was none the wiser None the wiser. No. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank it, goodness. It, it doesn't happen these days. <laughs> You're right. That's right. I, it's, uh, and it's taken a while. It took a while because I had to have a vendors that come to me and say, oh, what if I get my friend or just don't go there. It's not interested. Not interested in dummy bids. Because mm. the, the, the world these days is so educated, you know, in the world of auctions and TV shows and Google and they're so aware of it, you know, they're up to date with it. So, you know, playing funny bugger than an auction is a really silly thing to do by anyone's standards. So... Mm. No, I really appreciate both your times, both valuable times, and you're taking um, time out of your busy schedule. So I really appreciate uh, joining me today and look forward to seeing this podcast go live and can see your clientele and our clientele enjoy the very informative session today. It's terrific. They can get something out of it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, very much. Thanks, yeah, Rocky. Very good. Thanks, Thanks, Joe. Thank Thanks. you. Well done. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We would love you to share this podcast with your network and if you have any questions or feedback, please connect with us via our social network or head to gagliardiscott.com.au.